Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Ellie Griffiths, author of the new novel, The Postscript Murders. Ellie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Great, great to have you. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, how would you describe The Postscript Murders? Well, the postscript murder starts when an elderly lady living in sheltered accommodation and sort of assisted living on the south coast of England dies. Um, and it's very sad, but she's 90 and not in good health. So no one thinks it's very suspicious. Um, and then her carer, her caregiver, goes to clear her flat and finds that the lady whose name was Peggy has lots of crime novels in her house. And what's more, a lot of them are dedicated to Peggy. And some of them say, thanks for the murders. And then the carer finds some business cards describing Peggy as a murder consultant. And that's enough to take her suspicion to the local police, who are first sceptical. Uh, but then it turns out that Peggy was actually employed by crime writers as a murder consultant to find gruesome ways for, for people to die in their books. But when a, a well-known crime writer dies, it appears that somebody might be killing off crime writers. I think that's all I can say. <laughs> well, I'm curious because I know you've written a number of mystery novels. Do you have a, a murder consultant that you use? Well, I don't exactly, <laughs> but there, there is a real life uh, counterpoint to Peggy, actually, because I have an aunt, um, an Aunt Marge. And since I've been talking about her, I've found that so many people have an Aunt Marge. I don't know why that is. But anyhow, I have an aunt called Marge, and she lives at happily just stayed straight away she's she's you know well and uh, with us still with us um but she lives in in sheltered accommodation uh on the south coast of england and when, as soon as she moved there i don't know what it was maybe it was the sea view maybe it was the fact that she has a lovely sort of balcony where she can see everything that's going on but she became kind of i can only say sort of obsessed with murder and she kept thinking of crime plots and she would ring me up and i'd always know it was her because you know um not many people use your landline these days she'd right. always ring on my landline and she'd say oh hello love i thought of a good murder for one of your books so that's really what made me think you know what if there was someone whose job that was to think up murder and so was that kind of the original idea or impetus that led you to write the postscript murders? Absolutely, yes. I, I, I thought, you know, what, what an idea that there was somebody who was very sort of respectable woman. My aunt is an ex-maths teacher, you know, uh, living in this very respectable town. But what if her job was thinking up gruesome murders? So the plot did start there, really. It started with Auntie Marge on her balcony with her little notebook. She does have a notebook where she writes down unusual things that happen. So what was your original writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Well, I guess I'm sure it's true of a lot of your guests, actually, um, in that I always wanted to write, you know, always wanted to write, even before I... Um, before I kind of could write, I used to make these little picture books, you know. So I always wanted to write. When I was 11, I wrote a, a full-length crime novel, actually, and it was called The Hair of the Dog, which must have been a phrase my parents had used. I don't know if I knew what it meant, but I thought it was a good title. So I always wanted to be a writer, but, you know... Um, you never quite know how to do that to you. And I suppose I did a lot of the right things in that I uh, read English at university and then I went to work in a library and eventually worked for a publishing company and actually sort of worked my way up through this publishing company, HarperCollins, to become publishing director for children's fiction. But strangely, that 
sort of put me off writing myself. I'm not even sure why it was. So it wasn't until I was on maternity leave, and I've got twins, um, and they're 23. So I guess it was 24 years ago when I was on maternity leave. I suddenly thought, oh, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try and write a book. And that book eventually became my first published book. So like a lot of people, it's it's a long journey, isn't it? And certainly I wrote a lot of things that weren't published and weren't publishable, I'm sure. Sure. Well, what is your writing process when you're working on a novel? Since you write mysteries, do you plot extensively before you begin writing? It's so funny, really, because that has changed for me um, as I've gone on writing. I've, I've written, I think, 22 books of, of Ellie Griffiths. I did, I did write before under, under my real name, which is Domenica De Rosa, which sounds made up, I know. But I've been writing mysteries um, as Ellie Griffiths for a while now. And I always used to, I'm not a great planner. I know some people make amazing sort of spreadsheets and, and that's great if that's how you work, you know, but I'm not a great planner, but I always used to do like in longhand in my notebook, a chapter plan that went all the way through the book. And I would, you know, work it all out and work out who did it. Um, but for the last four books, which funny enough, I think have had my most complex plots, I haven't actually written anything down. I have had a plot, I have had an idea. And it's been in my head and it's changed a as I've gone along. And I don't know if that's because I've got a bit more confident now. You know, I've sort of got confident that I can work it out. And I don't even know if it'll carry on like that. But it's funny how that has changed. And there's a very good quote I'm trying to remember. I think it's by E.L. Doctorow. And he said something like, uh, writing a book is like taking a journey in the dark with your headlights on. Uh, you could only see a little way in front, but you can make the whole journey that way. And I think that's now how I write, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. And and I'm curious about that. When when you start thinking about a new book, I mean, you know, because you do tend to be prolific, are you do you do you start thinking about it while you're writing your previous book? And do you write anything down at this point, or are you just in your head kind of thinking like, hmm, that would be a good idea? Well, sort of a bit of both, really. Um, I, I can't really write two books at the same time, though I know some people can. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm sort of only writing one book at a time, but I'm often thinking about the next one. And, you know, if I do get an idea, I have a little notebook again always with me, and I sort of jot down an idea, and ideas do go round in my head. But sometimes I will, you know, finish one book. And as you say, I, I have been, I think, quite prolific over the last few years. I only have to, I've published two books a year. Um, sometimes I have sat down at, at my desk and just thought, I've got to start the book today. And I have <laughs> always started it, even if there's not much of an idea. So again, it's a little bit about just trusting that the ideas do come. Sometimes there's not much in my head when I sit down to start writing it. Wow. So um, I'm curious, you talked about you you uh, worked your way up at HarperCollins before you started your career as a novelist. Uh, I, I'm curious, what has been your experience, given your knowledge of publishing, now that you're kind of on the other side as, as an author? It's funny, isn't it? You'd think it would be more helpful than it is, actually. You know, you'd think that, um, you know, I would really understand everything about how publishing works. I guess... You know, I, there are some things I do understand that maybe a, a, 
a first-time author wouldn't understand. But, you know, publishing has changed as well a lot in the last 20-odd years since I was there. And also, you know, um, you forget how kind of needy you feel as as a writer. You sort of want your editor to tell you that it's all okay. And you sort of can't tell yourself that, you know. I wish I could, but I, I'm really dependent. I'm one of those people, I don't show my book to anyone when I'm working on it. Um, so the first person to see is my editor, Jane, who's edited everything that I've written. And uh, so I'm very dependent on her and I, and I can't sort of edit it myself. You know, I'm re- I also need Jane to tell me whether it's any good at first, but then I need her to work on it with me and say things like, you know, you always get those moments where your editor says, is it still Thursday? Because everything seems to happen on Thursday. Or someone gets in a car and a skirt and gets out in trousers and things like that. And I do need an editor for that. So it hasn't really helped in that way. I still really need an editor, but I guess it has helped me manage expectations. I know how hard it is to get on in publishing and I know how many books are published. So I guess I think, I think I'm an easy-ish author to work with and that one, I do understand deadlines, so I've never been late. And two, I kind of do know how hard it is for a book to do really well. Yes. Well, well what, what writing advice would you offer for those who are listening who are working on their own stories or novels? I guess I would say a bit, as I was saying earlier, about sort of sitting down at your desk and knowing you have to start. I would sort of say, don't wait for inspiration. You know, I would say, sit down and start writing. And then inspiration comes. Sometimes inspiration comes at the end. You know, you don't have to have a killer idea, you know, to write a book. So I would say, start writing try and write every day. I know it's really hard and, you know, I'm lucky that I'm not doing a full-time job. Many writers are. So try and write every day. I try and write a thousand words a day, which isn't that much really, but it does, you know, in that way, you hope that in 90 days you'll have something like a book. And that's the other bit of advice. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I would say keep going until you've got a manuscript. Somebody once said to me at the beginning of my sort of writing career that you can fix a bad page, but you can't fix a blank page. (laughs) And that's always stayed with me. So write something down. So then you'll have a manuscript that you can edit and you can work on. So I would say start writing and try and finish. I know that sounds very, very obvious, but it's not that obvious, really. (laughs) 
Great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, I'm a, you know, I, I suppose I'm sure like, like all, all your, your listeners and um, guests, I, I am quite a prolific reader. I read all the time. Um, I love reading um, sort of historical fiction, um, all sorts of fiction. Recently, I read uh, a very good uh, book by a British author called Will Dean uh, called The Last Thing to Burn. And that's going to, I think it's only just come out in the US, but it is out in the US. And it's a very tense novel uh, about a woman who's basically held prisoner. And it's really, it's one of those books, it's not a very long book, and you're happy it's not long, because you sort of can't bear that level of tension. But I thought that was really, really good. I think it, you know, it should, if there's any justice, make Will a big star. Um, and another book that I really enjoyed recently was by Erin Kelly, and it was called Watch Her Fall. And it was about ballet. It was about murder amongst ballet dancers. And like a lot of people, when I was young, I, I read ballet books. And it's kind of like a grown-up version of a ballet book where everyone starts killing each other. So I would really <laughs> recommend that one as well. Well, are you working on a new novel now? Yes, I'm working on uh, the 14th book in my Dr. Ruth Galloway series. So. I write a series of books about a forensic archaeologist um, who uh, helps uh, the police solve crimes. My husband's an archaeologist, uh, so uh, I'm really interested in archaeology. Um, and they said in Norfolk, which I don't know if you know Norfolk, it's on the east uh, coast of England. It's very beautiful, but quite sort of desolate in parts, quite sort of lonely uh, part of England. And there's loads of archaeology there, so they're set there. So I'm working on book 14 in that series, and it's called The Locked Room. And it, because I've published one of those books a year for the last well, 14 years, I have now got to the point of 2020 and it is going to take place during lockdown. I did oh, wow. think about whether I should do that or not, and I decided to do it. So it's called The Locked Room, and if, if I finish it in time, it should be out <laughs> next year. So forensic archaeology. So, so what do you... Are there things that you specifically read in terms of like looking for ideas that have to do with forensic archaeology? I mean, are you reading journals or are you talking with your husband about ideas? Yes. I, I, I don't really talk to him about the books as much as you'd think, really. He did <laughs> give me the sort of, sort of inspiration to, to have the idea, but it's not kind of I, I don't sort of ask him for advice, um, but he has introduced me to lots of, of wonderful archaeologists, so we do ask for advice. Yes, so I uh, read archaeology papers. I um, read, um, you know, I, I love reading um, some nonfiction books about archaeology, but I follow a lot of archaeologists as well. It's a wonderful thing nowadays, isn't it, on Twitter and yes. Instagram, and you can sort of be part of the the conversation. I'm a member of Sussex Archaeology, and so, you know, in, in happier times we could go on digs together, but now there are lots of sort of online groups and you could find so such fascinating conversations about, you know, I don't know, about artifacts and stone tools, things I would never have thought I would be interested in. And I think for me the interesting thing about forensic archaeologists, well, archaeologists generally, is that they sort of dig down through the layers and they can read the landscape and they can look at landscape and they can say, oh, you know, that little hill, well, that, that's, that's a barrow, that's, that's a burial site. And sometimes they say things that really you do make your, your blood run cold. That I heard recently, um, and I know I put it in a book, an archaeologist say that if there are nettles in your garden, there could be a body. Because you only get nettles, I think, when there's been human activity. So it needs to be a body, but it could be a body. 
You know, you don't get nettles without humans. And that certainly made me look at my garden in a different way. <laughs> That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Oh, well, great. They can, I've got a website, which is www.elliegriffiths. Um, I'm also on Twitter as Ellie Griffiths. I absolutely love hearing from readers. I've got a, an Ellie Griffiths Facebook page and I'm on Instagram as Ellie Griffiths. So any of those ways, I, I just really love to hear from people, really. And if you, you like my book so much, the better. That's wonderful. Well, again, we've been speaking with Ellie Griffiths, author of the new novel, The Postscript Murders. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Ellie, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, thanks so much, Jeff. It's been lovely to talk to you. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Postscript Murders by Ellie Griffiths, available wherever audiobooks are sold. HMH Audio presents The Postscript Murders, written by Ellie Griffiths. Read by Nina Wadia. Prologue. The two men have been standing there for 18 minutes. Peggy has been timing them on her stopwatch. They parked on the seafront just in front of Benedict's Cafe. A white Ford Fiesta. Annoyingly, she can't see the registration, but if she uses her binoculars, she can see a dent on the near side door. If they have hired the car, the company will have taken a note of this. Peggy makes a note too, getting out her investigation book, which is cunningly disguised as a seaside lady's diary, complete with saccharine watercolours of shells and fishing boats. There are several reasons why Peggy finds the men suspicious. They look out of place in Shoreham by Sea, for one thing. Sometimes, just for fun, and to keep her observational powers honed, Peggy makes an inventory of people who have walked past her window. Monday, September 3rd, 2018, 10am to 11am. Seven times pensioners, two couples, three singles. One times man on roller skates, thirties, too old. Four times singles with dogs, two times collie crosses, one times pug, one times doodle. People always remember dogs. Woman, thirties, smartly dressed, talking on phone. Man, 60s, carrying black bin liner, probably homeless. Four-time cyclists, two-times male joggers, one fit-looking, one looking on verge of collapse. One-times unicyclist, probably from Brighton. The men outside her window do not fit this pattern. They're not cycling, jogging or accompanied by dogs. They are not pensioners. They are probably mid to late thirties with short hair, wearing jeans and short jackets, one blue, one grey. What would young people call them? Bomber jackets? An ill-starred name if she ever heard one. The men look similar because of the way they're dressed, but Peggy doesn't think that they are related. One is much darker skinned than the other and built differently, compact rather than wiry. She doesn't think they're lovers either. They don't touch or look at each other. They aren't laughing or arguing. The two best ways to spot if people are a couple. They're just standing there, maybe waiting for something. Occasionally, the one in the blue jacket looks up at the flats, but Peggy keeps back behind the curtains. She's very good at disappearing into the background. All old people are. At first, she wondered if the bomber jackets had driven over especially for Benedict's coffee, which is excellent, 
but the men don't move towards the shack. There's an alertness about them that Peggy finds most troubling of all, and they both have their backs to the sea. Who comes to Shoreham Beach and doesn't even glance at the shimmering water, looking at its very best today, dotted with sailing boats and accessorised with seagulls? But the crop-haired duo are facing the road and Seaview Court, the block of retirement flats where Peggy is currently lurking in a bay window. There's no doubt about it. The men are waiting for something. But what? At 11.05 precisely, Blue Jacket takes out his phone and speaks to someone. Grey Jacket looks at his watch, which is a chunky thing, visible through her binoculars, even at a hundred yards away. The two men confer and get back into their car. The Fiesta pulls out into the road, and Peggy leans forward to get the registration number. G.Y. something. Is that a one or a seven? She needs to go to the opticians and get her prescription changed. Then the car stops just outside her window. Peggy leans back into her curtains, which are loosely woven cotton. So loose that she can see through the weave. It's a little blurry, but she thinks that one of the men is leaning out of the window taking photographs. Off Sea View Court. The fiesta revs up and it's gone. 11.07 Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.